really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more, all about the world of rugby union. I am your host, David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it, all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. So I'm on Twitter, at of Scrum. You can find me on Instagram, at the Scrum of the Earth podcast, and you can always just shoot me an email at thescrumoftheearth at gmail.com. So it's been another very busy week, so with all the admin out of the way, let's get this show rolling. So as always, we start with our current updates and, you know, the latest update for me is, so the teacher for whom I was long-term subbing for the last three months, she has decided not to return next fall. So that means I will be able to apply, in fact, have applied for that very position. Theoretically, I should be in a pretty strong position as a candidate as well. So there's obviously a million variables that could easily mean I don't get that job. But I thought I'd, you know, float the possibility, A, because it's a good opportunity and therefore I count it as good news, but also so you all have a chance to float some positive thoughts and good vibes my way. So having my career and educational future sort of stolen away from me all at once by this GD virus, you know, it's been very difficult. And the last few years have been very tough for me among many other people. But, you know, I'm still keenly aware. I'm very much one of the lucky ones. And it's good to see a glimmer of hope for a change. So, to those of you who have already reached out with positive thoughts, I very much appreciate that. You all are the best. Uh, my first interview is tomorrow, so wish me luck. Well, Isa, once again, I don't know if this is good or bad news, but All Blacks fly half, Richie Mwanga, he has revealed that he will seek opportunities away from New Zealand following the 2023 World Cup. So the Crusaders star has signed a new one-year contract, which will keep him tied to New Zealand rugby until the end of the global tournament. Mwanga admitted to the, that the World Cup is a big target, but after that, he may seek to take his talents abroad, with Japan a likely destination. Quote, that's definitely what I'm thinking, unquote, he told the New Zealand Herald. <laughs> so... Uh, another reason for the, the one-year sign-on with New Zealand Rugby was allowing myself to have a look at opportunities overseas and seeing what somewhere like Japan has to offer and keeping my options open, whether that's one or two seasons over there and possibly coming back to New Zealand and hopefully play for the Crusaders and All Blacks, he said. I want to experience another culture with my family. Taking my wife and kids to Japan would be awesome to experience something different and another style of rugby. I've been at the Crusaders in Canterbury since I started my professional career, so I'm looking to experience something different, unquote. Japan has been a popular country for current and former All Blacks to ply their trade, taking over from France as the most attractive proposition. <laughs> and by the way, friends, odd little follow-up to this article. <clears throat> in light of Moanga's comments, the team that just won the recent Japan Rugby League One competition, the Panasonic Wild Knights, great name, by the way, uh, they almost immediately came out with a statement to the effect of, yeah, we're not interested in that guy which seemed very strange to me. I mean, even if that is their opinion, like, why go public? What a weird sport this is, eh? Moving on to the thoughts of the week, and, you know, <laughs> to be fair, this is more suitably under the news category, but it is definitely what's on the mind of all MLR fans right now. So Friday morning, around 10.30 my time, Major League Rugby announced somewhat cryptically that for violating unspecified league rules, the stupidly named team from Austin would not be allowed to participate in the postseason this year, and soon thereafter even added a big fat DQ next to their name on the league table. 
So in a move seemingly intended to mimic the deft handling and insightful decision-making in organizations like World Rugby or the RFU, they decided to announce this stunning news with zero explanation. This, of course, sent shockwaves through the competition, first of all, handing LA a first-round bye, and letting the Thundercats get a home game rather than a road game next week. It, frankly, makes the league look a little bit dumb, but uh, I, I can't imagine why they'd feel confident enough in their evidence, whatever it is, to make a move this dramatic without also giving us at least a, a hint of the reason. But on the other hand, if Austin had gone on to say, you know, win the title, and then we found out there were nefarious shenanigans, I mean, it would be no Texas backsies at that stage. The whole season would have been tainted. So in the end, I'm grateful they took care of it now. On the other hand, I mean, guys, what on earth is happening in your PR department right now? Did, did they leave for the summer? Did they take a break early? Also, that was, the, for the record, that was definitely the first time I've written the phrase, takes these backsies anywhere, and I think I nailed it. So at the end of the day, it's one more Western powerhouse that we don't have to worry about. So considering our position right now, I cannot complain one bit. I mean, well, maybe a bit. Sure. So moving on to our reviews, and whew, wow, so much great stuff to go over from this weekend. As you all are well aware by now, I, I do follow four leagues pretty closely. Two of those leagues began their playoffs this weekend, those being the URC and Super Rugby Pacific. Despite that fact, I'm going to stick with my new format and go in chronological order just for the sake of consistency here. So that means, as always, of course, we begin the action down in Super Rugby Pacific, where the number two ranked Crusaders were facing the number seven ranked Reds. And I have to say, the Reds showed some real grit, finding themselves down only a single point after 50 minutes. However, <laughs> you know the routine. This was the Crusaders. Suddenly, in a flash, they just took over. It was 30 to 15 after 72 minutes, 37 to 15 after 75 minutes. That would be your final score. The final quarter was just all the home team. And even when the Reds did get some sort of opportunity, you know, they'd knock it on or fail to release in time. It was just a, a perfect storm of making simple mistakes while your opponent is firing on all cylinders. Just a poison combination for any team hoping to take down a dynastic squad like Crusaders. 60 minutes of fun, 20 minutes of hell. So that afternoon also saw the opening match of the URC Final Eight with number three Ulster hosting number six Munster. You'll recall I predicted this one to be the only upset of this weekend, so how wrong would I be? Well, after about 10 minutes, John Cooney would get the first score of the day, and I have to say, it was it was pretty funny. So, as you all know, I complain here a lot about the dumb, you know, non-fight fights that constantly happen where sort of a slew of players are competing to see who can smile most obnoxiously while not throwing any punches, and that, of course, was what happened here. Naturally, the crowd and the cameras, and apparently even the players, got mesmerized watching this farce unfold. But with no whistle and no real reason to stop play, Ulster just did a tap and go, and presto, Cooney's over the try line with Munster players holding their arms out like, what happened? <laughs> it was great. It is my fervent hope that this incident serves as a wake-up call for teams who take part in these nonsense scuffles. Not only is it dumb and a waste of time, it might cost your team a try while you're busy yanking on someone's shirt and grinning at him. Hey, what happened? Well, of course, you all know me by now, and I typically root for the underdog, but Munster, you know, that, that served you right. What a boneheaded time to stop paying attention. Also, you know, with regards to that little underdog rule, you know, in this case, 
One team has my guy, John Cooney, who I've talked about here a lot. The other one has Peter Ochipshot. So I think I can make this the exception to my little rule. In any event, it was a very physical contest, as one would expect. But Munster just couldn't get out of their own way half of the time, just botching several scoring opportunities while the home team just kept grinding away. Great stat about Stuart McCloskey, by the way. They mentioned that he gets two extra meters of mileage after contact, a very funny mixing of terminology when you think about it, but he gets that on 55% of his carries. That is a hard man to bring down. In any event, these teams looked incredibly evenly matched, but only one side seemed to be able to translate success onto the scoreboard. Knock-ons, badly placed kicks, blown set pieces just plagued Munster the whole first half, despite a massive advantage in time of possession. And heading into the break, they were down 19-7. to so Nick Timoney, he took all of two and a half minutes to score the first try of the second half, and the comms queried, was that the knockout punch in this knockout round? Good stuff. Uh, anyway, things continued downhill for Munster, getting a try overturned, and then almost immediately afterwards, they were again pounding on the door inches away, and I literally wrote, here comes a knock-on, and then, you guessed it, they knocked it on. At this point, it honestly looked like Munster just didn't really want to win. It was kind of gross. Either way, I agreed wholly with the comms, who at that point were saying, it's now or never. They got to score here if they want any hope of getting back in this game. Sure enough, that's exactly what they did, but it was still 26 to 12 with 25 minutes remaining. And, uh, you know, a telling stat they might well have mentioned earlier, Munster have lost the last seven games they've played in knockout phases in this competition. Yikes! Sure enough, it, it simply got a, a bit boring after that, with Munster seeming to achieve their goal of most knock-ons in the history of rugby union, while Ulster were busy achieving their goal of, you know, winning the freaking game. So 36 to 17 was how they would do it. Munster have to feel a bit embarrassed about the shoddy and frankly lackluster performance they submitted on this night. Uh, you know, obviously I was hoping for a closer one here, but as friend of the pod, John Anderson pointed out in our most recent conversation, rugby is a sport that almost always goes to the favored side. A fact that has been sort of eating away at my root for the underdog brain ever since he mentioned it. You know, often on Saturdays when I'm watching some rugby, my son will come watch and say, Hey, who are you running for? And as you know, the answer is almost always the team that's expected to lose. And then when they do, he asks me, why do you always root for the losing team? And to be honest, it, it's a fair question. So next up on Friday were three consecutive MLR fixtures. First up, Atlanta. They were home to take on a NOLA side, still undoubtedly hurting from the beatdown we laid on them last week. And Atlanta, they were not messing around, racking up a 45-19 to 19 bonus point win to close out their season and their quest for a home playoff game. Of course... I had to watch that Atlanta game after the fact because it was happening at the exact same time as my Free Jacks were playing their final regular season home fixture facing New Jersey for the third time this year. Naturally, there I was at Fort Quincy for the action. We would lose this one, our, uh, lose our first home game of the year, 14 to 21 all told, but get ready for an official hot take, okay? Hear me out. So I know, I know. Many of you are going to accuse me of retconning this or maybe exaggerating or just misrepresenting. I'm telling you... I'm telling you the truth, okay? If you were at Fort Quincy this weekend and were within conversational distance of me, you'd know I'm not lying because I was saying it even then. This can't possibly be a popular opinion, but ready? I wanted us to lose this game. Yes, yeah, I know, I know. Losing a game is never fun. Losing our first home game also sucks in a big way. But this wasn't just any matchup. And when your goal is the finals and a title, things like home record just don't matter. It's not something you're going to even think about after the fact. So hear me out here. Thing one. <clears throat> so as you know, I'm also a Patriots fan. When my Pats went 16-0 and seemed to have their passport stamped to yet another Super Bowl victory, well, we all know what happened that time. And duh, I know we weren't looking to be undefeated here, just undefeated at home, but the parallel remains. 
Never losing means you don't remember how to lose, and it means you start to think it's impossible, especially when you're winning very, very close games. I honestly think it's sort of bad for you psychologically as a player to become disassociated from the very idea of losing. I think this leads to complacency and a lack of forward progress. Uh, so what do we have to work on, boys? Well, nothing really, because we obviously have it all figured out. What should we work on? Well, nothing, because we're obviously clearly good enough in all phases. Uh, okay, uh, once again, I know this is like the opposite of science, and there's no way a coach as good as ours would let that mentality creep into our player's psyche, so let's just call this one the sort of nebulous, unfounded fan theory. I believe it, but I understand if you think it's hokum. That's totally fine. <clears throat> Here, my friends, is the much more practical side. Okay. We played New Jersey three times this year. We won the first two, and we had this one left. We went in knowing we had a bye week and knowing our next opponent would either be them, Hoboken, or Atlanta. Atlanta would end up with a slight edge over New Jersey at the end of the regular season, but the fact is there is still a very strong possibility we will be placing, uh, facing New Jersey for the fourth time in just a couple of weeks, and that's the big thing, okay? If New Jersey were the Dallas Jackals, okay, I could see us beating them four times in a row, but they're not. They're a very, very good team. Even though we've sort of had their number this year, it hasn't been by a wide margin, not, not by a long shot. And when two teams are this close, the idea of one team beating the other four consecutive times, it's it borderline ridiculous. So my theory is this. If we have to play them four times this year, there's no way we're winning all four. With that in mind, do we want our loss to be this week when there's literally nothing riding on it for us? Or do we want it to be two weeks from now when it's the Eastern Conference Finals? I think the answer is obvious. Oh, by the way, on top of all of that, we still had great takeaways. First, they scored two tries in about eight minutes to start the game, just purely on crazy adrenaline. But we held them to only one more try for the remaining 72 minutes, during which we scored two tries. And in doing so, we prevented them from getting a bonus point victory, thus holding the door open for Atlanta, who were happy to take control and secure themselves a home game next week. So bottom line, it sucked to be there to witness the loss. Even the weather seemed to reflect the feeling we all had at the time, which also sucked. However, end result, we have more tape to look at to figure out what we can do better. We have no chance of being overly confident or foolhardy going into the next round. New Jersey now have the idea that they're sort of better than us when and if they return to Fort Quincy. And above all, if we do face them on the 19th, we won't be worrying, oh crap, what are the odds we can do this four times in a row? So... I know I don't usually come out with the sort of borderline crazy uber hot takes like this one, but I am all in and fully committed to this. Losing to Hoboken was a good thing. If the crow flies in and lands on a plate in front of me in a couple of weeks, I will eat it. No problem. But I feel very good about this one as things stand today. Rant over. So later on, the evening closed out with yet another Texas Derby with Houston, hoping to surprise Austin in their regular season finale. Of course, that was not in the cards. The Kitties got just 14 points versus 29 for Austin. And by the way, I'm already, Monday morning here, I'm already hearing rumblings about the fallout from the decision on Friday. The speculation is things are about to get very ugly indeed. So that did wrap up the Friday proceedings. Not a bad start to playoff weekend, eh? So Saturday, it was beyond a full docket of games. Once again, kicking off in the middle of the night in Super Rugby Pacific with the beginning of their round of eight playoffs. So beginning it all, we had Chiefs. They were at home for the Waratahs. It was again, sort of sadly predictable with the Chiefs getting two scores to every one of the Taws and then some, with the Chiefs coming away easy victors 39-15, to leaving the Brumbies as Australia's only last hope to advance this year. Next up, it was Slaughter facing the Lambs. Oh, oh wait, that should have read Blues versus Highlanders. Sorry about that. Uh, at the top of the broadcast, they mentioned that Highlanders would be without Aaron Smith for the match, but didn't say why until later when they casually mentioned, of course, Aaron Smith out with a groin injury. Uh, of course? Uh, what? <laughs> 
What? In any event, it was a trial by fire for the man I've highlighted here several times, Falao Fakatava. He looked very much up for it. You know, my guy scored uh, scored first. They got a penalty. And you know how in some sports they're like, well, they're on pace for X number of points, <laughs> like as if the exact trend was going to continue? Well, in homage to that very thing, if things had continued at that rate, my Highlanders would have upset the Blues 24-2 zip. Uh, but that's not the real world. Uh, my Highlanders only scored three more points after that the entire rest of the way, while the Blues just cranked it out. 35-6 to was the total in this one. Youch. Very expected, so there you go. Anyway, all the way back over in the URC, swinging our way over to Pretoria, it was the match I was possibly most looking forward to on the weekend with Bulls. Back in the confines of Loftus Versfeld to, to uh, face the Sharks, it was a cl- as close a thing as you could possibly want. My son asked, seeing the abbreviated team names on the screen, are they the Blues or the Bulls? And props to him that he knows, knows that both are actual team names. But then, ironically, the Bulls pulled a Blues, slotting a drop kick as the clock was dying. Just an amazing ending. The way they celebrated, it was incredible. The, uh, though the reward, I felt pretty sure, was going to be a trip to Dublin, unfortunately. But, you know, with that stab in the chest, three points, it was Bulls 30, Sharks 27. What a match. Okay, after that, it was time to check out the action in the Gallagher Premiership. And to their credit, they scheduled all six fixtures for the exact same time, which I always think just sort of makes things more exciting as the final playoff pieces are falling into place. So at 10 a.m. my time, the final weekend kicked off, and I've decided to lead with the two matches that, in theory, far-fetched though it may be, could still have had some sort of sway over the final four destined for the semifinals next weekend. So that means you have to begin with Gloucester. They were at home to face Starkiller, I mean Saracens. And as I, you know, at least theorized last week, the series decided to field a team of teenagers, and Gloucester were more than happy to take full advantage, getting their much-needed bonus point win. Would it be enough? As I mentioned, all the Prem fixtures were simultaneous, so as I was reporting this one, the ultimate outcome was still uncertain, but 54-7 to was the thoroughly surprising outcome at the Kingspan. Next up, we have to look at Northampton, who are hosting Newcastle. The Saints really needed to fall flat on their faces if Gloucester were going to have a shot at that Final Four, and that definitely was not part of their game plan. Just dominating the first half, 36-7. to I'm pretty sure that sealed the deal for the postseason, but of course I would wait for the uh, definitive statement by the end. Uh, Northampton, they let Falcons claw their way back into it, however, and approaching the final quarter of play, they hadn't added a single point of their own to their tally while Newcastle had scored 19 straight to pull within 10, but a red card for the Falcons, followed by 10 unanswered points by the Saints in just the next couple of minutes, seemed to draw the matter to a close, and they weren't even done at that point, eventually more than doubling up their guests. 65 to 26 after 80 minutes. Wow, what a weird team they are. So the other Prem fixtures weren't really going to mean much, though, to be fair, they were in large part still pretty enjoyable to watch. So I'm pretty much just going to do, you know, scores only for these ones. Beginning with Worcester versus Bath, the Warriors, they ended their yearly campaign on a high note, taking down the visitors 43 to 27. Maybe the new administration is finally starting to click there. Next up, it was Leicester versus Wasps. The Tigers seemed to be resting on their laurels just a little bit, only managing 17 points over 70-plus minutes. But with Wasps only getting 10, they looked to close out with yet another win. A penalty made it a two-score affair, and 20-10 to 10 was the tally at the buzzer. So Sale, a team I understand will look a lot different next year. Welcome to the Bristol Bears and the Sharks. They were all business in the first half, shutting out their guests 28-0. to nil. And though they allowed the Bears 19 points in the second half, it was still less than half of their ultimate 42. It was a nice way to end an up-and-down year and potentially close out an era there. 
you know, one of the first dumb jokes I ever made here on this podcast was that sale is just an acronym for South African lad, eh? And it looks like I'm going to have to be hunting for newer and perhaps even dumber jokes next year. So finally, to wrap up 26, that's right, 20 freaking six rounds of great rugby. This year's Prem ended with a tasty fixture between Exeter and Harlequins. I'm always fascinated to see where clubs are philosophically at this time of year. What I mean is, you know, to teams like the Series and now the Quins, neither of these teams could improve or worsen their own position this week. So the question is, do you rest your starters so they're all at top fitness for the next week? Or do you play them knowing that time off can often sort of take people off their peak performance? So Saracens, they clearly went with the former idea, but Harlequins, no, no. They had all the big names out there. And if you have a take on which approach is best, please let me know. You know, it's just an argument that always intrigues me. And I, I don't know if anyone's ever made a conclusive argument on either side. In any case, the game itself, yes, I bothered to watch it. It was too close to call the whole way. An absolute try for a try back and forth. Tied at halftime with the only crack appearing when Quinns failed to convert a try that would have leveled things at 33. At that stage, however, I remembered my pledge to not discuss this dirtbag organization while they still encourage their dimwit fans to do the tomahawk ch chant crap. So that was enough of that. Regardless, we will look at how all these results impact our semifinalists in our updates and preview section to follow. Then it was right back to the final eight in the URC, first with what looked like potentially the most lopsided fixture of the week, with the angry hornet's nest that is Leinster, looking to take their European frustrations out on a wilting Glasgow Warriors side. But hey, they don't play the games on paper, right? Uh, sadly, it, it was the toughest kind of smackdown, with Glasgow scoring the first try, then watching a hurricane of tries go past them before they could score again. And with 23 minutes to play, they were reeling. 57 to 14 down uh, after 71 minutes. Well, that's how many points Leinster had. And the comms said, well, if there was a mercy rule in professional rugby, they would have called it by long before now. And that may have been the harshest thing I've ever heard from the comms in any match. Dang. Anyway, they must have been disappointed to only get one more unconverted try after that. And as the comms announced, the nightmare is over for Glasgow. It ended a whopping 76 to 14, even worse than the fears of our good friend, John Anderson. If you're listening anywhere in Scotland, please send the man some flowers on my behalf. God. So to finish off what amounts to the quarterfinal round, we went back to Cape Town for Stormers versus Edinburgh. By the way, I have to say, I still find it positively jarring the way South African teams use pom-pom girls. It just feels like all these matches are being played 30 years ago or something. It's bizarre. In any event, their lineup was frightening to behold. It, it was hard to hold out much hope for the visitors in this one. Sure enough, a teeny brain fart early on from Blair Kinghorn. By the way, I've decided Kinghorn doesn't have a porn stash so much, more like a 1970s highway patrolman stash. Anyway, a little brain fart by him handed Stormers their first try after only two minutes of play. Yikes. Of course, Stormers were apparently already on their backup 12, and, he, and that guy went out with a leg injury, bringing in an entirely untested 20-year-old. Maybe Edinburgh could find a way to take advantage? Uh, no. Even sitting here half a world away, I was outright frightened by the ferocity with which the home team was attacking every breakdown, with enormous jackler after enormous jackler just piling in and creating havoc. Edinburgh, they looked very hard-pressed to even cope. Very, very interesting bit by the comms, by the way, as they mentioned, Frank Murphy has decided to coach players the breakdown rather than penalize them, quote, teaching rather than refereeing, unquote, as they put it. So players like giant super ginger fire hydrant Stephen Kitsoff were likely to have a, a complete field day. <laughs> my keen, insightful analysis in my notebook read, uh-oh. <laughs> to be fair, Edinburgh, they showed no signs of being cowed by any of this. After 25 minutes, they were locked at 10 points, but man, oh man, did Stormers look slippery on offense. 
Darcy Graham, to his credit, was everywhere. Almost single-handedly saved an easy try with about 10 minutes left in the first half. Suddenly, I was feeling that most terrifying of emotions. Hope. Naturally, writing that caused a yellow card for Magnus Bradbury, and Stormers were looking to close out the half with a backbreaker score. By the way, the comms then started comparing this to the Brumbies game from earlier, and I still hadn't watched that one, so it took a heroic dive onto the mute button by me to save that result. Phew! And speaking of phew, Edinburgh, I felt they were lucky indeed to escape that first 40 minutes with a tie score, with the comms describing the crowd as anxious. Well, we'd see. The home team, they took complete control in the second half, frankly. Though the visitors, they did keep it close, down 11 with 10 minutes to go. Edinburgh had a very promising drive only to again cough it up and spoil their own opportunity. And that, to me, signaled the, the definite end of the line. 28-17 to 17 was the final score in a brave effort for the last of the Scottish-based clubs for the year. And we were all set for the semifinal round. So right after that, it was time to wrap up the quarterfinals in Super Rugby Pacific with the Stumbling Brumbies. Ooh, the Stumble Brumbies. I kind of like that. Uh, they were facing a very good Hurricanes team. And, you know, while I'm reporting these games in sequence, I don't always watch them that way. And this fixture, my friends, I saved for the very last this weekend. A great Hurricanes team facing off against the last and brightest hope for all the Australian sides in front of a great crowd in Canberra. Well, I mean, sign me up, good sir. First thoughts were all about the weather, with the shots of the fans pouring through the gates wearing their full-on winter gear. It was eerily reminiscent of our first home game for, for my Free Jacks this year. Even the comms looked gobsmacked by the cold and couldn't stop talking about it. And even though it was never close to the freezing temperatures we have here, uh, it clearly was affecting everybody there. It was pretty great. Um, I wasn't very excited to see how enthusiastic the crowd would be if the game started slowly. Would they be able to warm themselves up and lift their team over TJ Paranara and his Kiwi mates? Well, Nick, now that's a 50-22. White got the nod at nine alongside Lolisio, and I was full-on rooting for the Brumbies with all apologies to my friend Josh, interviewed here just a few weeks ago because he's a huge Hurricanes fan. Anyway, it started with a penalty apiece, but soon after that, it started to look like it would be all Hurricanes. They got the next two scores, and then, oy vey, one of those completely accidental collisions that results in contact to the head, and presto, Brumbies got a red card, found themselves down 3-14, to 14, Already, my optimism was ebbing away. Despite this, the match obviously continued on. Now with the accompaniment of a steady, punishing rain, the hurricane craftiness and cold execution got them to a 15-22 to 22 advantage heading into the warm and dry confines of the sheds at halftime. Okay, by the way, I never end up commenting on the halftime bits, mostly because the coverage I get here doesn't actually include any. But for three weeks in a row now, they've shown a little bit. And I've caught them interviewing the Brumbies head coach, Dan McKellar. So if you're a listener in Oz or anywhere near him, can you please, please go fix the man's glasses? Like they've been bent and sort of askew since literally the first time I've ever seen him. I don't understand how he lives like this. Dude, fix your glasses for the love of all gods. Anyway, such a good game. And as I was rooting for the Brumbies, I was psyched as they took the lead for the first time late on in the match. And to my light, my light, my delight. They would expand and hold on to said lead, eventually prevailing in an incredibly exciting one, defeating the Kiwis 35-25, to and we were headed into a semifinal not exclusively composed of New Zealand teams for a change. Stumble on, Brumbies! Okay, that was it for three of my four competitions. We'd, of course, close out the weekend with the last three fixtures of what has been an incredible season of Major League Rugby. Saturday, Dallas, uh, sadly, they failed to get their first win of the year. They fell to Utah 5-33. to Quick shout-out to their fans, who have been incredible all year, despite all the travails, despite all the losing. They've been there every week, just, you know, in full throat, showing off the gear. It's been really great. You guys have a great franchise. Here's to you, good folks, and here's to a successful campaign next season. 
uh, on Sunday, Toronto, they, they were home to face DC. I, I have to reach out and talk to MLR stats guru, James Dealey, to find out how he felt about this one. On one hand, he was the one who had the insight to foresee this upswing in the fortunes of DC. But on the other hand, he lives in Toronto and actively supports his arrows, and they got they got pretty well smashed on the day. I mean, they did manage 35 points, not too shabby, but Old Glory came in and dropped 50 and looked to be in far better shape from day one next season, that's for sure. Last, but certainly not least, reigning champions LA. They were back at the Coliseum to take on the Seawolves of Seattle, and the Seawolves surprised most of us with a 27-35 road win, securing themselves a spot in the playoffs. Salvation out of the blue. What a year it's been for MLR. It's been incredible as a fan. Uh, I really hope this debacle with the team from Austin doesn't become crippling for the future of this competition. That would suck. Of course, that music tells you it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck. And this week, we are in fact giving out the full season awards. That's right. With four separate regular seasons completed, we're giving out one award per competition based on overall performance for their team for the year. Starting in Super Rugby Pacific, we're going with the Crusaders, Lester Fainga Anuku, the 22-year-old phenom who seems to get better with every game and seems on a direct course to shining for the All Blacks. In the URC, the award goes to Gareth Anscombe, who after one of the worst injury debacles I've ever read about, came back against serious odds to play 12 games for the Ospreys, where he placed 10th on the list of top point scorers with 105. I admit, this is much more of a heart selection than a head selection, but hey, let me live my life, okay? In the Prem, we have selected Mr. Consistency, Squitch Rugby's somewhat recent pick for best tenant in the world, George Ford, who also scored more points this year than anyone not named Patty Jackson. And finally, here in the MLR, the award goes to Mr. Josh Larson, the, the mighty captain for my beloved Free Jacks, a man who effectively gets mugged three or four times a game and never bats an eye. Guys, it has been a long season in many ways. Your dedication and talents have done immeasurable good for your respective clubs and have shown each of you to be worthy of this, the world's most prestigious of awards. Messrs. Fainga Anuku, Anscombe, Ford, and Larson, congratulations to all of you. You are the lucky winners of this year's end-of-season Diamond in the Ruck Awards. Congratulations. Enjoy all the spoils coming your way, and well done. That, of course, brings us to our updates and previews. Well, in Super Rugby and in the URC, we're advancing to the semifinals, while the Prem and MLR effectively catch up with that very same round. I'll say it again, it's amazing how all these leagues have dovetailed this year. I just don't recall anything like this in previous years. So, here at home, as mentioned before, Atlanta have earned a home match against our nemesis from New Jersey on Saturday, June 11th, the winner of which will come to Fort Quincy the following Sunday, where you know I will be. And next Sunday, Houston are still surprised to find themselves at home to face Seattle, and the winner of that one will earn a trip to L.A. to face the reigning champions the following weekend. So the Prem's Final Four will be squaring off as well, with both fixtures set back-to-back on Saturday, with Saracens playing host to my increasingly shaky-looking pick for Ultimate Champions this year, the Harlequins, followed by league-leading Leicester, welcoming a bipolar Northampton team uh, to Welford Road. So over in the URC, the top-ranked teams have proven themselves and advanced, giving us on Friday number one Leicester, uh, Leinster rather, uh, uh, hosting the number four Bulls. And then on Saturday, the number two Stormers will remain at home to host number three Ulster. Very exciting stuff. And down in Super Rugby Pacific, we'll have two absolutely cracking semifinals with, on Friday, the Crusaders hosting the Chiefs 
And then on Saturday, it will be the Blues welcoming the Brumbies. That should be amazing. You know, I've been tapping the Blues to win it all, all season long. But in my heart, I can tell I'm going to be rooting for the Stumble Brumbies. Let's shake it up, boys. Come on, let's do it. Well, my friends, what a year it has been. We're fast approaching our 100th all-time episode here, by the way. This is episode 97, if you are actually keeping track. Pretty incredible. Um, I do have a couple of special plans up my sleeve as well, so be on the lookout for more info. I'm also excited for very uh, very excited for two upcoming interviews, one of which is going to be with Rachel Law and the other with uh, Iroquois Roots Rugby. Uh, just really great stuff coming on the horizon, so please stay tuned. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, you can use Twitter at Scrum. You can find me on, at the Scrum of the Earth podcast on Instagram. You can always just send me an email by the scrum of the earth at gmail.com. If you can bring yourself to drop me a nice review, that would really help grow the show. And if you do like what we're doing here, there's a way you can show your support listed in the show notes for this episode. And you can even go to Anchor and become a monthly supporter, which people are already starting to do. So thank you very much for that. To all of you out there listening right now, thank you again for coming along. To all of you across the globe, cheers. Talk to you soon. And of course, be well.